Welcome to the Unwritten Life Podcast, where we share that your deepest pain can lead to your biggest gain, and that your story is still unwritten. Now introducing your host, Tim Sawhook. Welcome to the show today, everybody. Totally excited to have you on board for another episode of the Unwritten Life Podcast. As always, I am your host, Tim Sawhook, and it is my pleasure to have you here with me today. We have another great, powerful interview for you today. But before we get to that, real quick, I just wanted to say thank you so much for continuing to download the podcast, for sharing the podcast, and creating a place where people can come, hear messages of hope, and go out and spread that hope to other people. So I really appreciate all of you for doing that for me and for all of our people that have been on the podcast and sharing their stories. Like I said a moment ago, we have another great and powerful interview for you today. So I'm going to get right into it. Our guest today, she is a mom. She is a wife. She is a health coach. She is a grief coach. She is a public speaker. And she is a shining example of letting Christ work in your life. Here is my conversation with Kendra Zaru. Well, welcome to the show. Our guest today is Kendra Zaru. Kendra, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. What a privilege to be here with you today. Oh, it's totally our honor to have you on the show. We're really excited about it. And I'm kind of jealous of you because I see sunshine on your face as we're recording, and it is freezing here. So, <laughs> Yes, I'm so sorry for all of you that are in these cold places. I do <laughs> live in California, and although we have our cold days, it, there is lots of sunshine, which I appreciate. <laughs> oh, I bet. I am jealous of it. So you're already winning in my book. Um, so Kendra has an amazing story, you know, one of grief and some extra awesome things on the other side of it and everything in between with Unwritten Life podcast is all about. But what I do with everybody, I ask them to start from the beginning. So tell me a little bit about the beginning uh, before you had met your husband. What was that like? Okay. Well, um, right now, just so you all know, I am um, 43 years old. I live in California. I have four children. Um, but my story started a long time ago, actually, in, when I was in high school. Um, I was a tennis player and very involved in sports, and I happened to be hanging out with a bunch of friends on that were on the baseball team, mm -hmm. and that is where I first met um, Jeff, my who eventually became my boyfriend, and then um, later on, eventually became my husband. So our story actually started in high school, one of those high school sweetheart stories. So you guys met in high school. How long did mm -hmm. you guys date before you guys got married? What, what time frame? So, so we dated, um, we met um, sophomore year and then ended up dating junior and senior year. Mm -hmm. Broke up when we went to college because that was kind of the right thing to do, right? You're starting this new life and right. you got to experience everything. Um, got back together in college and then actually got married the summer after we graduated from college. Oh, so wow. I was married at 22. You were married at 22. I was married at 23. We, okay. We got awesome. the party started a little early, so that's good. <laughs> yes. That's right. Totally different than people do it now, but back then. Yeah. yeah. You know, back in the old days, yes. <laughs> in the 90s, which were the old days, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so you guys got married then. How long did it take you guys to start talking about building a family? You know what? We, um, let's see, we started talking about a family pretty soon after we got married, not ready to start a family, mm -hmm. but we actually, in fact, we weren't ready to start a family, but I um, 
for whatever reason, it had gone in for my annual testing and they had discovered some things um, just that were going on. I was a super, super healthy person, but there became actually some issues that um, we may not be able to have children of our own without going through in, infertility and treatment and extra things. And so that was kind of the beginning of this, oh, this is what real life is about when things <laughs> right. don't go as you planned. So that was our first um, kind of introduction into that. Uh, but we weren't planning to have kids, uh, but that was kind of some news we had gotten just a few years into our marriage. And so, um, you know, began to kind of talk about, oh my gosh, what does that look like for us in the future? Mm -hmm. um, but then um, about three years into being married, found out I was pregnant. So clearly what the doctor told us was not true. That's right. God had <laughs> yeah. a different plan. God had a different plan. Exactly. So when I was 25 years old, um, we had our first child and um, a girl, and she was amazing and um, just a really incredible time in our life. And then actually a year later, I found out I was pregnant with twins oh my all God. on our own. Yes. And so by the time I was 26 years old, I had three children under the age of two. Wow. That Any moms out there who can relate <laughs> to that right now, you're having yeah. hands in the air, waving them from side yeah. to side because they know that is a crazy party. It is crazy. And so for those of you new moms, I got to tell you, one of the things I look back on is that I laugh when I get to see moms like so enjoying every sweet moment with mm -hmm. their babies. Like I never had that. It was like just a crazy chaotic show <laughs> from the minute, um, you know, I started having children and it was all, but it's wonderful, but it was, yeah, it was the kind of the crazy zone for us for a while. That is awesome. So when you guys first got married and you came out of college, what kind of jobs did you guys take in? What kind of careers were you into? So I was a teacher. One of the things I, um, you know, that connected um, Jeff and I and I loved about him was we both had a heart to serve. We both wanted to make, to use our life to, to, to serve God and to make a difference in the lives of others. Um, Jeff was a um, finance major. So his initial vision was to go into business and make an impact in um, the corporate world, and I was a teacher, always wanted to be a teacher, I actually was going to be, wanted to be an attorney, and because my best friend had been killed by a drunk driver, and he had gotten oh, off, no. um, but I realized I wanted to be a mom more, and so for all you attorneys out there who are also moms, amazing, I didn't know that I could do that the way that I wanted to, so I ended up becoming a teacher, um, because I wanted to make a difference, and, um, mm -hmm. and so we kind of went that direction. But um, we had also always been serving in ministry. And so after college, um, Jeff was approached and asked if he would actually consider working at a church instead of going. And then he was getting interviewed and, and having um, interviews and offers from big six firms. And he decided to go into ministry. So that's when our formal ministry started. So how many years were is that before the children or you had the children at this point? So no, he had he went into ministry right out of college. Okay. And then um, three years in, we had our first child. Okay. So you guys out of college, you guys have a heart to serve, which is mm -hmm. awesome. I love to hear mm -hmm. that. He got into the ministry. Mm -hmm. Were you still teaching at that point while he was? Yeah. So I was teaching, and then he was doing youth ministry as well. So then I would also um, join in at night, you know, in at our youth group, and then on retreats. So we were totally doing life together. I had a small group of high school girls that actually came to my house every Friday. Um, I'm still in contact with some of them today, oh, and. Really cool. um, 
and then we would they go off to school I'd go off to teach at a, you know my school and that was kind of our life for a while and then when my daughter came um, I ended up staying home with her and then of course when the twins came I mean it was <laughs> that it was on that it was on that mm -hmm. was on so what did yeah. it look like uh, early on you guys are married you have three kids yeah. in the ministry yeah. you guys are serving things were going smoothly you know what things were going well and then and then my husband really felt called to go um, back to school and go to seminary mm -hmm. so then in the midst of all that we had our three babies and moved down to southern california and he went to fuller seminary and um we did that kind of life where he did graduate school and i was home with the babies and our life was really it was hard but really good because we were just serving and doing that kind of life together and so just kind of um yeah it was a really really unique time in our life of just being a family we had moved away from family up in the bay area mm -hmm. and really committed to just being together as a family and doing this life and like okay we're all into this life that god has called us to totally different than we had anticipated but we were all in that's awesome. And it's good once you are together with a spouse or a friend mm -hmm. or a couple, when you finally feel like you're in that lane that God has put you in. And I've mm -hmm. talked about this before on previous podcasts. It's like you're driving in a lane with no traffic and you can just fly on and everything is going so smooth. And in the smoothness is we don't anticipate our zigzags coming up. Right. And, and I know for you, some of those zigzags unanticipated started to come up in your life. What happened? Yes. So I will say first, because this is a really important thing, um, something I'm really passionate about is um, as my husband finished graduate school, we got called to a church in Texas. We loved that church. But as I began as a family to do full-time ministry and have my husband be a pastor and preaching and teaching and doing, mm -hmm. working with kids, for those of you who might be out there whose spouse is in ministry, um, I get it. That is an incredibly, incredible calling, but it is an incredibly difficult life as a spouse because you, and that's when I began, like things started to just be like, oh, this life doesn't belong to me. And mm -hmm. your life just starts to look different. It's an amazing calling to serve in a church, but it's also can be really hard and sometimes a little lonely because your husband is there to serve everybody else. Right. So, so what, what was the loneliest part for you in that, in that aspect then? Um, I think for me, and, and as I've explored this more as I've gotten older, there is an expectation when you're a pastor's wife that you are to be a certain way. And to be honest, I am, um, I, we moved to Texas. I'm a California girl, like in the way that I dress, in the way that I talk, like I just, like not in a bad way, but just like you wear flip-flops and jeans. That's like kind of what you do. We don't get really <laughs> dressed up here in California. And I was surprised for the first time in my life how people can be judgmental about their expectation for you when your family serves in the church. Mm -hmm. And um, they don't really want to know what's really going on in your life. They just want you to be the happy Christian who's everything's always right and perfect right. and good. And that's not real life. And I think that that's where sometimes as Christians we can miss all that God is doing when we have, feel like we have to put on a front um, that the Christian life is supposed to look a certain way when in reality God is just with us in every situation we go through. And that's where the power is. I think. No, I think that's a really good message, especially for anybody because my dad's a pastor. My mom was okay. a wife. He's still a pastor. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I understand being a pastor's kid and okay. certain expectations and things like that. And I could see that for sure. So I think that's a good message yeah. to relay to anybody who's out there. 
Yeah. And I, I kind of shared with the church right away that I really believe that as Christians, our relationship is with Jesus and we're to go, we're to, to serve where he calls us using our gifts, not necessarily where an organization tells us we're supposed to just because our husband works there. Right. So that was, was a good thing that once I was able to articulate that our church totally supported the ministries that I felt called to, not what I had to. Right. So that was that was a huge freedom that came once I was I learned how to articulate that. Okay. Yeah. So what happens next in your story then? So then my husband served. We lived in Texas for a while and loved that. In 2005, we moved back to California to serve at a church in California, in Northern California. Uh, we just wanted to kind of be back in our um, with our families and closer mm -hmm. to home, and um, and we just served along for a couple of years, and then around 2000, the beginning of 2000, well, end of 2008, I should say, my husband really felt the calling to start doing ministry back in the corporate world. Interestingly okay. enough, he really was. Um, connecting so well with people outside the church and showing people that you can be a normal, fun Christian. And so felt called to go back to the corporate world. So he ended up um, actually, um, we were making some transitions in the church anyways, and he took a job with a company in the beginning of 2009. Okay. And that was kind of the year um, that everything changed for us. So 2009, he started a new job, was working really hard. We were in our um, early 30s. And as you do at that stage in life, you, especially when you're starting a new job and changing careers, you're working really hard to climb the ladder. Our kids are in elementary school. They're all playing sports. Um, and we have two girls and a boy. They're all playing sports. My husband was coaching. We were totally involved in everything. And um so it didn't really surprise us or occur to us that anything could possibly be wrong when my husband was super tired and, you know, just more tired than usual, but right. that was the stage are, of life. Right. You guys are working hard. Like you said, you got two, mm -hmm. you got three kids, actually, mm -hmm. you got two mm -hmm. parents working hard and going in different yep. directions, but yep. you're living life every day. You're happy. You're yeah. fulfilled. You're doing what God's calling you to do. Yeah. Yeah, and we were we were always into um, our family's always been really athletic, so we were into um, you know coaching our kids and playing. I was a tennis player. My husband ran, you know, did triathlons. I mean, we just were yes, totally involved. Thirty four years old, doing just doing life and loving it. Okay. Mm hmm. And then um, the weekend of July fourth came, two thousand and nine, and my husband woke up in the middle of the night and like had the worst stomach ache mm -hmm. and couldn't even walk in our master bedroom from like our kitchen, uh, from our bed to our bathroom. Oh, wow. And, um, and we knew clearly something was wrong cause this was out of the blue. Um, mm -hmm. so my mom who happens to be a, an operating room nurse, um, we called her and she's like, you know, that's very strange. Just, just go to the ER and have them check it. So got a neighbor literally to watch our kids. We went to the ER in the middle of the night. Um, and yes, he was in tons of pain. So they immediately gave him pain medication because he could barely even sit still. And then they, you know, told us, well, we'll do a scan and figure out what's going on. And, um, you know, I'm sure it's nothing. They asked me the regular questions. Has your husband had a colonoscopy? Has your, has your husband any issues? And I'm like, oh yeah, no issues whatsoever. He had a colonoscopy a few years ago, but everything came back fine. Like, there's no issues. He just finished a triathlon a few weeks ago. No, I have no idea what this is. And so they assured me, Kendra, he's young. You guys are healthy. I'm sure there's like a little blockage. We'll, we'll figure this out. No worries. So. so 
as they they're giving you this information, they tell mm-hmm. you they're going to give them a scan. When you're sitting there waiting, what are you thinking? What's going through your mind at this point? I'm I'm thinking, oh my gosh! Honestly, I'm thinking, ah, oh, it's it's Fourth of July. We're supposed to take the kids up to the cabin. I'm wondering, my parents have a cabin. I'm wondering if we're going to do that. Um, I mean, I wonder how long this whole thing is going to take. Like, um, I mean, it didn't. It never crossed my mind that there was anything really seriously going on. Um, I thought maybe there might be a blockage. And because my mom is a part of the medical community, like we were the family where like you get a little ill, you get sick, you don't really go to the doctor unless you need to. So I am not like afraid of the doctor right. at all. Like it, And so, and I don't go to the doctor thinking the worst thing possible could be happening. I thought my husband has started a new job. We're in the thick of things. Maybe he has a little blockage of some sort, like they said, no problem getting rid of it. Like we're, we're like a family that just, we just kind of do our life. We're serving God. We're doing the things we're supposed to. Like, I'm sure this will be, all be fine in a couple days. And you guys can go to the cabin, right? And we can go to the cabin and we can do the 4th of July parade and my little elementary age kids love that. <laughs> and it'll be perfect. And it'll be fine. It'll be great. So well, what happened next in the hospital? So um, they, uh, the doctors came to me and said, okay, Kendra, we'd see a little blockage. Um, we are going to take him into surgery. He should be out in a few hours. And um, so, and then you guys will be here for a couple days and then you'll be able to go home. We don't anticipate any problems. He's in, you know, he, you guys are, he's young. It should be fine. Right. And so at that point, my um, dad, you know, got the kids from the neighbors. He took them up to the cabin. My mom came and stayed with me because her um, doctor friends were the ones that were doing the surgery, which we really appreciate. She could call her friends in and, and, um, and so we, they wheeled him off to surgery. This was about, this is the morning. Um, they wheeled him off into surgery. Um, my mom and I literally took a walk around the hospital because they said, well, it'll be a couple hours, come back. And because my mom knew the doctor and the nurses that were going to take over, because you can't ever be a part of an operation for your own family member. So she, of course, wanted to be with me. Okay. Um, and... Um, and we took a walk for about an hour, came back and was just sitting in, you know, the waiting room, just kind of talking, knowing it would probably be a few more hours. And one of her doctor friends comes out that's supposed to be in the surgery. Mm-hmm. And we're sitting down on this little couch in the operating room, people are in the waiting room, other people around us. And the doctor says, um, Kendra, I just want you to know that the surgery is going to be much shorter than we anticipated. And my response was like, oh, how great. I knew this would be so much easy. This would be easy. How wonderful. And then I looked up at his face and um, he said, actually, uh, and they said, and then I actually, I can remember standing up. So I, cause they said, actually, it's going to be shorter for a different reason. And I stood up so I could kind of see his face a little more and I'm not looking up at him. Mm -hmm. And he looks at me and he says, um, well, we opened him up. And I'm not really supposed to tell you this until they do all the um, testing, but because your mom is my friend and my mom is sitting right there with me because Mm -hmm. your mom is my friend, I wanted to let you know that we opened him up and we have to close him up because there's cancer all over his body. Oh my gosh. And I literally like fell to the ground stunned. Well, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine, you know, like you said, just moments before, you're thinking, oh, this is great news. They're coming out to say, yeah. it's not as bad as we thought. It's not yeah. as bad as we thought. And then yeah. you, you get the news that they open them up, and there's so much cancer that they had to close them right back up. 
Yes. And so as, so they, he went on to describe, we're going to close him back up. We'll send him to recovery. And when it's, when it's time, you'll be able to come back and see him. And I have to be honest with you to this day, I still don't remember how long that lasted. Mm -hmm. I just remember that I fell to the ground. And of course my mom was there. Oh my gosh, this is so long ago, but it's still so, so emotional. So I apologize, but um, no, don't apologize. This is what this, (laughs) I want you to take a breath for a minute. And I want to say that I get to have the privilege every week talking to amazing women who go through struggles, but they sit here with such strength. And you guys can't see it because I get to see it here live. So Kendra is sitting here with such strength, and she's telling us a story, not just for her to recount it, but to touch your guys' lives. So I really want you to dial in and just let yourself feel it like she is right now. Thank you. You're welcome. You know, when, when um, yeah, I fell to the ground because – Never in a million years at 34 years old did I think that I'd have a doctor tell me that your husband's body is full of cancer. Mm-hmm. And immediately, I, your mind just starts spinning like, what in the world are you talking about? What happened? And it's like this, like you picture these, like these images and these thoughts like racing crazily around your brain. And, and so my body literally just gave out. And I just sobbed. I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. And I, um, and my mom, of course, was so amazing. And she was just there. Mm-hmm. And, um, and of course, you don't have any other information. What happens is, of course, they take biopsies when he was open, you know, opened up, and then they close them back up, sent off the biopsies. And then we had, you know, some waiting time, like a couple days to have everything confirmed, what kind of cancer, what stage it was at. Where do you go from here? And so it was just this crazy life-altering moment that forever changed. Well, let me ask you a question. So in that time frame, you mm-hmm. know, you've, you've fallen to the ground, you're sobbing, you're with your mm-hmm. mom, and you know there's this waiting period for a couple of days to mm-hmm. find out. So what was it mm-hmm. like during those two days? Were you praying like, okay, maybe they have this wrong? You know, surely they get mistakes. Mistakes happen. Maybe it's not as bad as they think. And you know, God can do anything. What was it like in those two days waiting? Um, I hope it's okay if I say this, but it was literally like living in hell. I, I, um, I don't know how i only by the grace of God did I get through because your brain really goes crazy. And my brain, I'm a really positive person. So yes, my first response was this, this can't really be like, there's no possible way this could be. Mm Um, and then as I, my husband was still, um, so he, once he had that surgery and then because of all the medication and because they had given him so much medication to last for a long surgery and then they shortened it, you know, like he's just kind of out of it and he doesn't really know, he has no idea what's going on. So it's just this period of waiting with your thoughts and your emotions and your deepest fears as you're sitting there in the hospital with the person that you love just lying on the bed. And it was really a difficult, painful time. And you so desperately want answers because I think as women, we can also be doers. And like, if something we're going to, we're going to like, just make it better for everybody. That's what we do. And so I got to have, what's my plan. I got to have a plan to make it better. And really what happened during those moments, those times. And I know it was, in a weird way, this gift from God that there was nothing I could do. But the most important thing was to just pray and to just right. like pour my, pour my heart out to God and my fears. 
Yeah, I think in times like that, and I've talked about it a few times on the podcast, it's just that, you know, to be still and know I'm God, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's so hard when you're in that panic mode, like you said, your mind is racing, Mm -hmm. and you're just trying to think of solutions. I'm going to band-aid this. I'm going to fix it. 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 God's just waiting like, all right, stop. Let let me, let me, let me jump in here. It's like double dutch. He's like, he's just wait, let me jump in. I'm going to be here. And and it's hard though. It's really hard when you're in that to take that moment to say, okay, just let me breathe and let me just pray about that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I will admit that, um, it was one of those things where there was that part of me and, and this came back to me so many times along our journey that, um, I definitely was like, okay, Lord, I'm like calling in a favor, right? Like, right. why do we do, we do weird stuff like that. <laughs> like, oh, like we, we decided to like serve you. My husband became a pastor. We went to seminary. We've been serving. This is when you're like, you know, you're like totally going to come through. Like, this is going to be such a great story right. of healing and redemption. I just, I like, I can't, okay, let's, let's do this, mm-hmm. right? So you just right. kind of go back and forth between these horrific fears to, not that he owed us, but I think there was definitely a part of me, and I, and I totally admit and own this, um, that I thought, we've lived this life right for you, and you are going to do a great story through us, and that story is going to be survival. Right. And... <laughs> And, and, you know, in that time frame, you do. You think that, and you try to reason with God mm-hmm. as, like, we deserve to have him reason with us. And like you said, you're like, you feel like you're calling in a favor. And you're yeah. saying, you know, God, you're going to work in a special way in my life, and it's going to be through this. Not knowing yeah. that he is going to work through your life in a special way, but it's not yeah. going to be this, maybe. So what, you, what you hit the nail on the head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what, I mean, what happened next after in that? So then what happened next was that um, when my husband finally came to a few days later, the um, doctor, of course, sat with us, and that was the first time um, we were together, and the doctor shared with him that he had stage four metastatic colon cancer, and it, um, which is very, very, very odd for a 34-year-old healthy male. Mm-hmm. Colon cancer takes a while. It's usually an older person's cancer. It takes a while to develop. It takes usually like 10 years, and you can see it along the way. So stage one, two, and three of colon cancer, the survival rate is like um, like 80% and about 90%. Stage four metastatic, less than 5%. Oh, Wow survival rate and that's when a new set of like the world just kind of fell apart for us however being who we are we're like less than five percent that means somebody's got to make up that less than five percent that's going to be us Mm. we are going to be that five percent and what a great story this is going to be to show of god's glory well let me ask you a question (laughs) what was jeff's response when he first got the news how did he react to that jeff had Now, again, here's the deal with this. This is why it was so traumatic for the kids and I in so many ways. But Jeff went into surgery and was um, obviously, um, they put him on drugs. Don't mind the train that goes by my house. Um, But um, so so he was under drugs. So when he came out, 
he's so he, because the cancer was so had so infiltrated his body they were now aware of it that there is pain associated with that when you have that much cancer in your body that's destroying your body there's pain so mm -hmm. he began this process of constantly being on pain medications okay. so he was fully aware of those conversations but he was also slightly medicated okay. so oh it was he was absolutely devastated of course devastated mm -hmm. But at the same time, he wasn't fully himself because of the pain medication. So it was, um, it was again, a very, we were super connected in the, um, in the diagnosis, but it was also a, a time of actual kind of real loneliness for me because he wasn't fully there. Right. But he also fully understood. It's kind of hard to explain, and if you've been through it, but at that stage when there's so much cancer, they do have to give you medication to to just be able to handle the pain right so it was it was weird it was a really weird time and he but he was of course devastated and so sad because the doctor began to talk to us um, in those conversations and these are the things that you know break my heart for those that are going through it right now that these conversations or maybe those that have been through it those of you that are listening those conversation when a doctor tells you that there is a chance of survival, but it's very slim, and they begin to talk to you like, my job is to tell you the truth about your diagnosis, and mm -hmm. you're hearing these stats that are not in your favor. You're hearing this, here are the options of what to do, and they're not pleasant. I mean, they're brutal in order to try to fight this disease that's killing your body. It's a mm -hmm. brutal, brutal journey. And so there's a sobering part of that, even for him, and it was sad. And then, of course, you immediately go to, then the conversation went to our kids. I'm like, what in the world do you tell an eight-year-old and a nine, two eight-year-olds and a nine-year-old about their dad? Mm -hmm. like, oh. So when you're there in that hospital, and I will mm -hmm. get to you, I want to ask you about what it was like talking to your kids. Mm -hmm. You just told me a minute ago, you know, I'm a doer, I'm a fixer, and I want to fix this. Mm -hmm. When you said that and you talked about being in that last 5%, you're like, okay, we can be this last 5%. Did you come up with a plan immediately? Like, this is how we're going to tackle this. Mm -hmm. So we live in Northern California, and we have the best colon cancer specialists in the world at UCSF, and we were able to get in. We, at the time, had um, a different insurance, but we were able to get in with an incredible doctor. His name is Dr. Banuk at, uh, we have Stanford and UCSF, and so we went there. We're willing to pay out of pocket. We were willing to do anything. To, and so I'm like, okay, right? You go into, you go into fixer mode and like, we will do whatever it takes, spend whatever it takes. We're going to do alternative. We're going to do the best, um, you know, Western medicine we have. We've got UCSF cancer. We've got this. We've got that. And we set this plan into motion. Mm -hmm. And nothing was going to keep us from getting him the best care he could. So what did that plan look like? What was it, What is the best care in that situation? So... So the best, what we felt called to do was to also to get a second opinion, of course, and that's why we were we went to Dr. Vinick, we went to UCSF mm -hmm. and met with that staff and met with him, and um, I figured that if we were in the best, if we were meeting with the best doctor that we could in the world, really at the time, then I would at least feel better about what our path was, no matter how difficult it was, and so. Um, the bottom line came down to this. His cancer was so aggressive that 
there wasn't any trials he could be a part of. They had come out with some new drugs. So we, mm -hmm. we had come up with a plan for doing intensive chemotherapy. Um, and we were just going to have to take it one round at a time, basically, or one, you know, they put together like your first round and we had like eight rounds. You can went and got a port and we'd had to go and sit, but it was this whole process of because of the nature of his disease mm -hmm. and because of his age and where it was, they could only commit to doing one thing at a time, see how his body reacted, and then we go on from there. Okay. Mm -hmm. So now you, you've attached a plan to mm -hmm. try to attack the cancer, mm -hmm. attacking your husband. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to go back to you talking to your kids. Yeah. So the reality is, you know, I couldn't imagine having to tell my two kids that my, mm -hmm. my wife slash their mom is potentially dying and suffering from cancer, what that would look like. And when you tell this, I want you to use it as your story plus a coaching moment. Okay. Because um, I know that you are a grief coach. Mm -hmm. And I want you to use it as how maybe someone could say this to their kids. And I know it's different okay. for everybody, but if you wouldn't yep. mind uh, answering that question in that way. Sure. So part of my personality is that I don't know how to be I'm not, I'm not, I can't lie. I can't like hide stuff from people that just don't know really how to do that. So what I really prayed about was how do I tell my children the truth so that they can trust me in this process, mm -hmm. but do it in an age appropriate way. Right. And that's what I think is the key and what I would encourage everyone to do. I know people who are going through the same thing and who have since been through the same thing, whether depending on what kind of cancer they have or what kind of terminal illness and people choose to not tell their children what's going on, and everybody has that choice and that right to make. My, my, um, my encouragement, and, and I have, my children have reiterated this now that they're older, but my choice at the time was to say, this is something that God has allowed my family to go through, not just me, but my family. Mm -hmm. And if I am going to allow him to do the work that he needs to do, I have to allow my kids to be a part of the journey, no matter how painful it is. And so I went home, um, actually about a week later, I finally went home and that's when I kind of had the first conversation with my children about what was going on. And the first conversation was, Hey, you guys, dad is really sick. I did not use the term cancer right away okay. because my kids were eight and nine and kids again, at the time we knew the chances of his survival were low, but we didn't know for, I mean, we didn't know. And so I wanted to be, again, age appropriate um, with what I shared with them. And I didn't want to instill any more fear in them. Right. So I just explained to them, dad is really, really sick. And he has um, yeah, yucky disease in his body. And so for the next month or so, mom, dad has to be at the hospital all the time. He's going to live there and mom's going to go back and forth and you're going to be here at home with grandparents. And we're going to figure out what's going on with dad. Okay. And we're going to find ways, just like when you get sick, um, you know, we go to the doctor and they give you medicine. We're going to try different medicines to see if we can help dad get better. So that's how we started it. Okay. Mm -hmm. So during this time, mm -hmm. were they coming to the hospital with you to see dad? Yep, they were coming. Mm -hmm. And so they can see that, of course, he's a little different because he doesn't have his energy and he's kind of in and out of it. But he was always tried so hard when the kids were there to just like be totally present you know he'd have to sleep for hours after they left of course because even for a short visit he would get so tired but he would try to communicate with them he would talk to them he would talk about sports he would talk about school show me and we'd bring like school work in and we tried to make it as normal as possible in that situation okay mm -hmm. 
Yep. So after they had come there, and I think mm -hmm. it's important for people listening to have kids, when they would leave, did you allow them to ask questions? Oh, all the time. What's going on? Mm -hmm. It was dialogue. really, yeah, it was really important to us to have an open dialogue. And so they would say, so they, of course, Jeff had an incision. And so we showed, like, we didn't show them the incision because it was all bandages, Jeff. But, mm -hmm. you know, we talked about the bandage and they got to look at it. And, you know, Daddy, do you hurt? And they could ask um, any, and we could encourage them to ask any question. They could touch Dad. They could kiss him. They could hold his hand. Just to be, to yeah, it, that was really important to us. And so they would. You know, Daddy, does it hurt? Could you, do you want to throw up all the time? You know, whatever. So they asked every question they wanted to. And they were just trying to process it the mm -hmm. best way they could, at, mm -hmm. like you said, at that age-appropriate level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it was, it was um, you know, as time moves on, of course, it gets more intense and more brutal. Those initial conversations as a parent were really difficult because I knew so much more. But I didn't right. really know. I didn't really. Like, wh like uh, why would I make my kids worry about their dad dying if in their mind they didn't, um, you know, immediately think, is my dad going to die? They knew people go to the hospital. They knew their grandma, like, operated on people. And so, mm. like, that just happens. And then you stay in the hospital for a while. So my kids weren't too – they knew he was really sick, but they didn't understand at, at that time. So, Kendra, how long was he there in the hospital before you guys went home? He was there for a, a full month. Mm -hmm. For a full month. And, yeah. So, so the first after about the first week, the doctor finally said to me, "Hey, Kendra, it's okay. He's in really good hands. Go home. Like, shower in your own shower. Get new clothes. Just like take some time for you. You know, you feel when you have this kind of surprise and tragedy hit you all of a sudden. I just wanted to stay every second." Of the day with him um, and and that's not healthy too so you know again so many words of encouragement for those who are going through this that it's okay to take a little time to just like breathe to take a walk to go home and I I'm really glad the doctor insisted that I do that because I felt guilty leaving right. um, but I did and but that was one of those the most the first time I went home to my house my kids you know were gone um, with my parents and I just went home and my parents kept saying or my mom kept saying hey let me go with you let me go with you because she knew I was hurting and that right. was that moment that for I knew God had put on my heart Kendra go home by yourself I am with you and so I ended up going home this one day that the doctor said go and I walked into my house and nobody was there and I walked in and I walked upstairs to our bedroom and it was the most one of the most profound moments of my life that will be with me forever because I walked up to our bedroom and I realized my life was forever going to be different mm -hmm. and I didn't know what that would look like. But I began to get a sense because I went over to my husband's closet and I opened up his closet and I saw all his clothes like hanging in the closet, like something so basic and normal, mm -hmm. right? That's a normal thing. And I remember running my hand along his clothes that were hanging up, all his shirts were hanging up. And again, I fell to the floor and I just was so struck with what had happened in our life and how devastated I was. And that's when I cried out like, God. Is is he gonna survive? Is is he gonna make it? Mm -hmm. And that's when the Lord said, "Kendra, do you trust me?" And I'm like, "That wasn't my question. Like, is he gonna survive? What is happening in my life? Like, all of a sudden, I'm home. All of a sudden, these real life normal things, our bed, his clothes, our normal life, like, all seemed different. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, God, 
tell me that it's all going to be okay. And the Lord, and God, like it's one of those few times in my life where he goes, Kendra, do you trust me? I will never leave you or forsake you. And I go, God, I want to know, is he going to, he's going to live, right? Like, this is crazy. He's going to live. And in that moment, again, God was like, Kendra, do you trust me? I will never leave you or forsake you. And in that moment, I sobbed and I had this, that was the first time I ever sensed, sensed like, oh no, he may not survive Mm -hmm. and God's going to ask me for the rest of my life, do you trust me? And do you believe I'll never leave you or forsake you even if he dies? And it was this moment that really the, that rubber meets the road moment for me in my life that would I trust God even if I know my husband might not make it? I think that's a really powerful story, obviously, mm-hmm. a powerful moment that so often we ask different questions that God gives us a different answer back. Because you mm-hmm. said, wait a minute, that's not the question I asked. I didn't right. ask, you, ask if I would trust you. I asked, will he survive? And he kept giving you a different answer. And I think it's important to, in those moments, to listen to the answer you're getting mm-hmm. and don't try to keep on going back. But no, I want this. And he gives you another answer. Mm-hmm. Feel it and just try to take it in that moment that he is answering you and you have to figure out the question. Yes. I think and that's he, a very powerful moment. It was. And he was answering me in a way that I didn't want to hear, like you're saying. And that is a yeah. really difficult that's a really difficult experience because I wanted him to say, of course, you've done everything I've asked you to do. You've led a life that's serving me. Of course he's going to survive, but you still have to go through this. So just go through it knowing it's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. And that's not the answer I got. Right. I mean, that's, so, that's not faith, you know? Right. That's right. Not faith. Right. And so that's um, when I knew um, I, so finally I kind of recovered from that. I just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed again. I mean, lots of tears during these moments, um, but I just knew this was going to be one heck of a journey. And I didn't know that it was going to, how it was going to go. I had a feeling maybe it wouldn't go after that conversation with God. But what I did know is that no matter what I faced, no matter how dark it got, no matter how much pain, that God would be with me. So I just had to believe that. Like I had to cling to that and hang on to that. What happened over the next 10 months? So over the next 10 months, we um, went to every specialist. We went to an amazing chiropractor. We tried every kind of treatment, every drug that you could possibly try, everything. And um, unfortunately, not one thing affected my um, Jeff's tumors, my husband's tumors. They got bigger and bigger until finally – in um, March of 2010, we end of February, beginning of March, he decided I cannot do the same work. Because one of the side effects for those of you who know this, that and for those of you that don't, is a lot of some one of the side effects of these drugs, um, especially for the cancer he was fighting, was sores all over your mouth and all that goes all down your insides, and so you can't eat anymore. You can barely talk. You um, can get sores on your face, but the painful ones are inside your mouth and inside your body. And so you really have a hard time engaging in anything, and you're in an insane amount of pain. And the last treatment, it was like our last-ditch effort. We had been working with the chief oncologist, and it was like the last drug that they wanted to try because it was so painful for most people. And he tried it, and he just was so miserable. He just finally said, Kendra, I I can't do this, and I want to enjoy time with you and the kids. And so 
end of February, beginning of March, um, he went off of all treatment and we decided that we're just going to try to enjoy as much of life as we could together. So I know it's different for everybody in these stories mm -hmm. and I haven't been involved in these stories personally. So mm -hmm. what would you suggest to people who are there and they finally come to the point where I don't think this is really going to work and you're coming to that realization. Do you say take that extra time at the end just to enjoy the moments together, let that person enjoy life as much as they possibly can. What kind yeah. of, what would you offer that? I would say, you know, again, I'm really, especially as a grief coach, but especially as someone who has have lived it, who has lived it. I don't ever want to tell people how to grieve or how to deal with it because it's so important that every single person listening to this, or if you share this with somebody that you know, Every single person is on their own journey. Every single person responds to grief and deals with it differently, and it's all okay. Mm -hmm. For our family, the best decision for us was to um, really enjoy that time. And my children have amazing memories. My um, Jeff was, for a couple of weeks, was just himself, and he felt like he could connect with the kids. We really made an... Um, our, our community did an amazing thing. They sent us to Disneyland, actually, just because oh, it was something awesome. it was something sweet and simple that our kids want, um, you know, that we could just do as a family and make it fun and make it about the kids and not Jeff's illness. And so we went. And here's a funny story about that. So here's another thing that when Je when we went to Disneyland, Jeff was in a wheelchair, mm -hmm. of course. But but he, you know, we're we're 35 at the time. And um, so we, and he looks, I mean, he looks like he's sick, he's thin and stuff like that, but you wouldn't necessarily be like, he's super, super ill. So he was in, in a wheelchair and I have the kids with me. And one of the things that you get to do when you're in a wheelchair at Disneyland is go to the front of the line. Okay. Let's be honest. That's very cool to be able to go to the front of the line and just hop on the rides. Well, one day we were standing, we went to the front of the line and this nasty family mm -hmm. said, Oh, what's the matter with you? I wish I could be in a wheelchair. This one dad goes, oh, I wish I could be in a wheelchair so that I could take my kids to the front of the line. I mean, please get to the back of the line. There's not anything wrong with you guys. And I turn and I go, oh, my gosh. We, I'm so sorry that this is upsetting you so much. I'd gladly change places with you. My husband's dying of cancer. Mm -hmm. And so our friends gave us one last trip to Disneyland. And everybody in line was like, oh, sorry. You know, and so my kids later on, somebody said something else. And so later on, somebody said the same thing. And my son said, you know what? We'd be happy to let you go ahead of us. But my dad's in a wheelchair because he's dying of cancer. And I thought it was really interesting for all of us that how quickly we judge other people when mm -hmm. we think that everything looks fine from the outside. We have no idea what's going on on the inside. And I'd like to th say that I wasn't ever a judgmental person before this, but I became even less of one. Like, I thought right. it was just, and my kids had this really great real-life example of we can never judge what someone's going, what someone's doing or what they're going through because we have no idea by simply looking at them. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, really crazy all, stuff. Yeah, really crazy yeah. stuff. You know, the nerve of people sometimes is yeah. astonishes me, things they will say, yes. so hurtful things without even knowing. And yeah. it's, it's something that was just on my mind recently is that, you know, you don't see the invisible battles that people are waging yeah. every day. Yeah. And, you know, you might go by them and think in your life's 
horrible or something bad's going right. on, but everybody's carrying that invisible battle with them, and yeah. it's, you don't know it. So, yeah, guys, be kind. Be kind, just, exactly. Just be kind. Yes. Just be kind, and mm-hmm. that will take care of a lot of the problems. Yeah. Um, and I think that my kids were also able to handle that because uh, obviously as time went on and Jeff got sicker and sicker, I had to have more intense conversations with my kids. Right. And as you can imagine, as a mama who sits down with her eight-year-olds and nine-year-olds and, and, and like they're, they're saying things like this, like this is the kind of stuff my babies would say, like, mom, you always make us that spe- special smoothie with the orange juice and all the fruit, why can't you just make dad that smoothie and get him better? We always feel better with the smoothie. Like that's how innocent they are. Right. And as the as his disease got worse and worse, and he was in bed and he couldn't do the things that he that he wanted to, and he was throwing up, and all the things that happen when you're going through cancer, I had to sit with my kids. And finally, one day, my oldest said in one of our conversations. You know, I had told them that dad had cancer and all this stuff. And so finally one day she said, mom, is dad going to die? And I tell you, for those of you who have been through it, or maybe for those of you who know that day is coming, that you have to share that with your kids or whatever, my heart goes out to you because it is one of the worst moments of my life to look at my innocent children. And as parents, all we want to do is protect our kids. And we want to just give them this great life. And in that moment, I had to totally surrender that God loves my kids more than I do, that mm-hmm. he will protect them, and that my job was to answer the truth so that they knew they could always trust me. And I had to look them in the eyes and say, you guys, I don't know the answer to that. Only God does. But yes, there's a very good chance your dad might die. And it was horrific. I mean, sobbing from my kids. Mom, can't right. we do anything? But that is part of the journey. And whether it's cancer or whatever it is that your family faces, whoever you know is listening, that there's going to come those moments when we have to totally let go of our kids and let God do what he needs to do with them, let him be the comfort that they need, right. all the things that we try to be, that is amazing, but ultimately, only God can do it certain times, and that was a real difficult time for me. So at the, at the end of these 10 months, mm-hmm. Jeff did lose his battle. Mm-hmm. Can you want to tell me about that? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I feel so thankful that he was able to be at our house. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, um, he ended up dying um, in May, May 21st, 2010, and we were home, and it was about 4 in the morning, and I was able to. The last couple of days were really rough. Obviously, when you get to those last days, um, we had called in hospice um, about a month before, and they were amazing. I cannot say enough great things about hospice. Little angels, I tell you that. They're just with you every step of the way, working with my children. Not only did we have a hospice nurse to administer medication, but also a social worker that comes and worked with the kids and I. And they're just incredible, incredible human beings who are so such servants. I mean, just incredible. I can't say enough great things. But um, mm-hmm. he was, um, for the last number of days, obviously, we, he, was, um, he was on morphine. And so as he just kind of started to need more and more morphine, that's when we um, had to you know, kind of say goodbye. But I got to spend every 
last minute of his life with him um, on May 21st at four, like four in the morning. He um, took his last breath, and I got to hear him and hold his hand. And it was, it, was, it was really difficult. We all knew it was coming, but I went into each of my kids' rooms and woke them up. And it was, it was a really, really, really rough day. I mean, they I came imagine. in. It was awful. I mean, they, they cried and then came in and saw. And, and I allowed each of my kids to make the choice. Do you want to hug dad's body before they take him? And it was all, I mean, it's so many things I never expected I would have to deal with. But each of them actually came in and spent time with him. They were together. And, and I have memories and moments, and they're okay if I share this because I share this and I've asked their permission, but you know, they, you. Really, they really did lay, like, you know, they were, their feet, little feet are on the ground and they're laying across. My husband was on the bed um, before um, the coroner came and stuff, and, and they literally just, Daddy, please, can you please wake up? We don't want to do life without you. Oh, my gosh. So really painful, but really powerful in that for my children, and I really, really, truly believe, and my kids have told me this over and over again, Mom, thank you, as hard as that was, thank you for not keeping us away from that and giving us a choice mm-hmm. and an opportunity to say goodbye to our dad. And I really, truly believe because we were willing to face those really difficult moments and trust that God would give us the grace mm-hmm. and the comfort that we needed, that my children are healthier today. Um, because of that, of those experiences as painful and as horrific and as difficult as they are, you know, sometimes we think if we just don't deal with it, then it'll be better. And this is my personal advice and my coaching to people is that allow you and your children together to just fully embrace the pain together and you heal and God uses that to heal you and your family in such an incredible way. You know what? I wanted to jump in here on that. This is a, I was reading your website, and I encourage mm-hmm. people to go to your website after this, and we'll have it in the show notes. You have a lot okay. of good stuff there. And you wrote in there, I am a real-life example of what can happen when you're willing to do the work and to sit in the pain, to learn mm-hmm. how to deal with it, begin to move through it, and start living life again. The thing that stuck out to me was sitting in the pain. Mm-hmm. What did that mean to you? If you want to say that to anybody else, what does that mean, sitting in the pain? Sitting in the pain means literally not making yourself busy or ignoring the situation. Sitting in the pain means that you literally sit still and let every fear and ache and horror and missing missing him, um, all the tears, just let it wash over you in the moment, in the days to come, because our human tendency is to run. Our human tendency is to make it better. Our human tendency is to say, well, we had great years together, is somehow we want to just immediately make it better, feel better in our heart. And that's okay, because it's such, such horrific grief time and such a horrific time. But the problem with that is when we move on like that too fast, are, we do not allow, there's no opportunity for God to come in and do what he does best, which is to reach right down to the very depth of our soul and remind us that even in that moment, he is with us, which is what gives us the strength to keep going on. When we try to go on on our own, it might work for a little while. That's the confusing part about it. It right. might make us feel better for a while, mm-hmm. but ultimately, 
it will end up destroying our hearts and our relationships. And so sitting in the pain means you just have to feel it over and over and over again. And to just to know that trust God in the process that he will give you that grace to get you through to the other side. Yeah. It's the only way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no one who says it and there's nothing that I read that you've written that says, Hey, it's going to be an easy path. Mm -hmm. It's going to be so easy and we're going to be better. It's going to take the time to feel it. And I, I thought that was very powerful that sitting in the pain that stuck out to me even before we even talked today. So thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. Um, Before we go on to um, what happened days after, I think it's very important to say that Jeff was not just a guy who had cancer. He's not mm-hmm. identified just as that. So tell me, tell me about Jeff. What was he like? Tell me, was he a funny guy? Was he fun? Do you have a funny story about him? I want to hear about him a little bit. Oh my gosh, you're so sweet. So Jeff, um, what I can say about Jeff, and, and for those of you who know him, who are, who are listening to this, you will just... Jeff was, he loved life and he loved people. So he, he, he would get with you and talk with you and he would make you feel like you were the only person in the world he was talking to. And there's nothing that Jeff wouldn't do for people he loved. Nothing. I mean, he was just that kind of guy. He was an avid baseball player, avid baseball fan. He knew every stat. He was a huge A's fan, Oakland A's fan. Okay. Um, and so you could find him talking baseball, coaching baseball, watching baseball, being at baseball, um, any free time that he had. Um, he loved, loved, loved to, to play baseball with um, our son. Mm-hmm. And he, of course, loved, tried to get the girls into baseball. They weren't having any of it except <laughs> just to play, just to go watch the games. But, yeah, um, yeah he, he, but he was, I will tell you this, Jeff was passionate. What became his passion was Jesus. And he wanted the entire, he grew up in a non-Christian home. Mm-hmm. And so he, when he became a Christian and God took hold of his life, he wanted the world to know what it was like to live for Jesus. And, and um, that is, uh, I would say everybody that knows him would say that was the mark of him. He was a guy who loved God and loved life. So it made Christianity uh, kind of different for a lot of people who didn't know Christianity, that you could have fun and you can enjoy life and you can drink beer and like beer and right. still be a Christian <laughs> and love baseball. And love baseball. <laughs> hey, there's nothing wrong with that. And he sounded like he was really fun, really fun yes. to be around, loving Jesus, and it's good. Yeah. It's good to see Christianity is not just a Bible, right. itself or a word. It's people, how they, it's people. How they live their lives. Mm-hmm. And I think that's yeah. really important for people to know that when you see people living their life, it makes you want to kind of have a better life and live a better life. And yeah. it sounds like he was the perfect example of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is so good to hear. Thank yeah. you for yeah. saying that. I really, oh, my gosh. Thank you for asking. Oh, absolutely. So. Jeff passed away at home. Mm-hmm. You know he's in a better place in heaven now. Mm-hmm. And, and now you know this starts the recovery period. It's a new day one in your life. Mm-hmm. So what happened next? So I, I'm going to, this is, a, I'm, I'm going to be honest the whole time, but this is where things got really um, even more crazy for me. So first of all, I totally believe that part of sitting in the pain means that even after the person dies, you can't just go right back to normal life. Mm-hmm. So for me, for me and for my children, again, my children and the suffering we had experienced over the 10 months was so extreme um, and was so radical for us that I knew that we needed to like, we've got to face this head on. And I don't really know how to do that with an eight 
and a two eight-year-olds and a nine-year-old. So we're just going to kind of do the best we can. And so I immediately sought out, um, you know, counsel from people that we loved and trusted and, you know, were therapists and different things in this area and tried to get my kids into counseling and all that. And um, that was really actually difficult for my children. So I'm going to be totally awesome. They were not interested in like talking to people that they didn't know. Mm -hmm. They didn't feel very safe with that. So we ended up finding um, a pastor who specialized in this and some other people that we were super close to who had backgrounds in therapy and stuff. And that's where my children kind of worked through stuff. But then we also went away from our hometown and kind of went up to um, my parents' cabin and spent almost the whole summer there. And that was really important to me because um, it allowed us to talk about Jeff all the time. It allowed us to cry whenever we wanted to. I asked, you know, I really was intentional about making because I'm the parent making my children deal with their grief. And Jeff had also done videos at the very end of his life telling the kids how much he loved them, how he would always be there for them, and he had saved them and given them to me so that when they were ready, they could watch videos of their dad. And so I had shared that with them, and I said, look, dad and I talked, and you don't have to watch these until you want to because they're emotional. Mm-hmm. And so by the end of that summer, they did want to watch them, but it was definitely a process of diving in and getting help and also talking, 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 talking about it and mm-hmm. crying about it and not being afraid to talk about life with their dad now that he was gone. And okay. I think that was really important. No, that sounds like a very, and you guys had a really unique situation where you were able to have that summer. Mm-hmm. You know, where maybe some other people wouldn't really have mm-hmm. that opportunity to really get in it together mm-hmm. and sit in that mm-hmm. pain together and mm-hmm. feel it and talk about things and cry mm-hmm. if you wanted to, laugh if you wanted to, but just to be normal around each other. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, and now this is your new normal. You know, you're without your husband or without their father, and it, you guys are trying to find a way to rebuild and go on. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So what that look like in the months to come as we fast forward just a little bit? So it, you know, it was um, one of the one of the most profound things, and I've shared this a lot with um, widows and widowers. That one of the pro- most profound things that the social worker told me was, Kendra, as you and and Jeff before he died, because we were so young. Because um, I think this is really important, because this is a big issue that people talk about when you lose a spouse. Mm-hmm. That um, Jeff had talked about with his family, his parents, and with mine and our siblings, like. Kendra is 35 years old. I'm dying at 35 years old. I want her to remarry. Mm-hmm. I want her to remarry and have a life. I he knows how loyal I am and he's like you have to you have to find love again. That's there's nothing wrong with that. And so he talked to our kids about that. He talked to our parents about that. Um and so one of the and I say that because then the social worker independently had said, "Here's the deal about dating again and finding love again Mm -hmm. let me be and i want to be real clear about this with people that are listening that because i think this is really powerful you will never grieve long enough for some people you will grieve too long for some people the reality is as a widow there was i was never going to do it right for everybody in our life right and so what the social worker encouraged me to do Um, is to follow, because she knew that I was a Christian, is that the most important thing is that I live my life to honor God. 
And it doesn't matter what anybody else says because people will attack me. People will attack my kids. I, you cannot please everybody in this process because everybody grieves differently. And people are opinionated and judgmental and they haven't walked in your shoes. And I learned later on how powerful those words are and were. And I make sure that I pass them on to every single person I work with or come in contact with. I think that's very important. I mean, as you, I've seen you write about your grief is universal. People process it differently. And whatever way you do to deal with it and get on with it, that's okay. Mm -hmm. You're not relegated mm -hmm. to anybody else's feelings on how they say you should feel or how long you should grieve or you've grieved too long. Move on. You know, I moved on. Why can't you move on? Right. Um, you have to do what's right for you mm -hmm. and your family. Right. And, but part of the grieving process for me and part of what makes it the process compounded and really difficult for many of us mm -hmm. is that people in our lives feel, feel like they have the right to dictate that. And it just makes the whole process even more difficult. And so, um, you know, um, I, I don't know. Yeah, it was just, that was, that was, um, something, um, that was, you know, kind of challenging. And so, um, in the process of me dating again and stuff, people, you lose friends or even just after Jeff died, people don't know how to be with us when we're not a couple. And so there's so many things that come when you lose your spouse. And I thought maybe I was unique in that, but as I have been bold enough to talk about it with people, I'm finding again that it's a universal thing, that people don't know how to deal with the surviving spouse. They don't know what to say. They don't know how to include you or not to include you. They don't know to talk about it. Do I bring it up? It becomes very awkward with many people, mm -hmm. and that's really hard. I think it's important that you bring that up, that you give, you give people permission mm -hmm. to find the words, find the language, and reach mm -hmm. out to me. Um, if you've listened to any of our podcasts before, I spoke to a, a mom who had lost a child mm -hmm. uh, before birth, and, um, and people didn't know what to ask. They didn't know what to say. Mm -hmm. What is the right thing to say? Mm -hmm. Did I tell, should I share my happy news with you or because you're going to be upset? Mm -hmm. and her advice was to say, include me. I'm more yes. hurt if you don't include me. Mm -hmm. Would you say the same thing along those lines? I would absolutely say the same thing. Absolutely. I had a number of friends that maybe were struggling in their marriage or something came up with one of their kids or something with a whatever. Just, just other issues that we deal with in life. And so often they'd be like, Kendra, I'm, I'm so sorry. I don't want to share with you, with this with you because it's nothing like what you've dealt with. Mm -hmm. And finally, I was like, time out. Just because I lost a spouse to cancer does not make my pain more than your pain. It's just right. different. Just and different. I want, and, and it's just different. And that goes for all of us. And, and I wanted to still be a part of people's lives, even if they, I wanted to know what they were going through. I care about my friends and I want to be a part of whatever it is they're experiencing. And people would feel guilty for sharing something with me that wasn't death of a spouse. And right. I'm like, come on, this is like so crazy that this happened to me. Your issues are still your issues and they're still valid and matter and that's okay. And so, right. yeah, it was that, it was a very, in the, in the, probably the six to eight months, especially after Jeff had died, it was a really difficult time of, of everybody learning how to live again. And I, even my friends would say, I'm, I'm a pretty easy friend. Like I, I would like to talk to people about anything. There's not much in my life that's off, off, you know, about, or whatever. You can talk to me about anything. And I want to hear about my friends' lives. 
And it was just that awkwardness of how do we do this friendship now without, and I never expected that, to be honest. Never yeah, expected that. And, and anybody who's gone through a loss, be a child, spouse, or whatever, mm -hmm. you're already isolated because you've lost mm -hmm. that person who has been such mm -hmm. a big part of your life. Now people are scared to talk to you, so you become even more isolated. And you became part of a club that you didn't want to be part of. You, but, yep, exactly. But you're in it now. Mm -hmm. And so the answer you're saying is talk to people. Talk reach to out it. to them. They want to hear your joy. Just because they had a loss doesn't mean they don't ever want to be happy again or share your joy. Yeah. And I would also say, for those of you who are listening who haven't been through this, it, the most powerful thing to say is simply, how are you doing? And then stop talking. Because people will say things like, how are you doing? Oh, you had so many great years together. Oh, it gets better with time, doesn't it? And you're like, no, no, it doesn't get better with time. And I don't care that we had great years. I wanted a whole lifetime. Right. Right. Like, and so although the intention is so good, my recommendation, I get this asked all the time. People send me messages all the time. Like my friend, her spouse, her husband just died. What do I say? And I always say, just say, hi, how are you doing? I'm here for you. And then stop because mm -hmm. let them just talk and share. Right. So yeah. that's really important. No, I think that is very important. That came up in our other conversation too is things that people would say and they were like, no, no, you, we didn't have just a couple years together. It was good. And this <laughs> yeah. is all meant, this is all for a reason. And what's the reason? No, I'm suffering here. So I think that's very important. Yeah. You know, we say it as a joke, you know, like, to say hello, how are you, and then shut up. But really, really, let the person tell you this is how I'm doing. Yeah. Don't say it for them. So I, I think yeah. that is very important. So you talked about um, that they, Jeff had told you, and you talked to your kids about moving on and finding love again. That happened for you, right? Can you tell us about that? It did. Um, actually, this is kind of funny. My, um, I, I'm now married, and I met um, my husband through my oldest daughter actually. So my husband was a single dad and my husband now, his name is Keith and he was a single dad and our girls were friends. Um, in our town, we, we totally ran in different crowds and our different groups of friends, right? He, he, um, yeah. And so we didn't really socialize together, but one day, um, my daughter Kate said, mom, I think you should go on a date. And our, I think you should, no, she, I think it went like this. Like he wanted, Keith was going to bring over sushi and pizza for the kids and stuff because our girls were hanging out. And she said, I think that'd be cool. In fact, I think Danica, which is his daughter, and I think you should go on a date. And I'm all, mm, <laughs> no thanks. I don't think so. And then um, we ended up spending, you know, just spending time together with our kids because he was single and didn't get invited to stuff. And I was single and didn't really get invited to stuff. And people had started to, like, try to set me up. Um, you know, we had some other, actually, widows in our area. And so friends, and just with such great intentions, had set me up for coffee and just different things like that. And, you know, um, it wasn't a right fit. Wonderful people, but definitely wasn't a right fit. And then with Keith, it was just this, um, just a real natural, you know, just a real natural um, friendship. My kids loved him, loved spending time with them. Even my parents were like, he is wonderful. You, he is such, he is like, it's just like a gift from God. I think you should go out on a date with him. Uh -huh. And I'm like, oh, this is, and then, but I, and so I finally did. And that's when, you know, that's when judgment sets in. And so that was really difficult for me. 
Um, but I was a big believer mm-hmm. in, um, you know, like my the social worker had said, Kendra, you're never going to, you don't, it's not about replacing love. You just have more room in your heart to love. And so I explained to my kids, like just as, and to myself, and I, I want you out there to hear this, that here's how we're designed that just as like when you have your first child, you're like, Oh my gosh, I could never love another child like this. Mm-hmm. Right. You just, right. it's so special and unique. And then you find out you're going to have more children and you love them so much. And you don't love one more than the other. Your heart just expands to love. And I'm so grateful. And I give all God, all the glory for allowing me after suffering so much to expand my heart to love again. And my children absolutely love um, my new husband, Keith, and he is, my family does, my siblings do, my parents do. He is such a blessing to our family, and um, his daughter is, um, I think of as one of my own, and it's just, we have um, really been blessed with um, just a, a new beginning for our family, so I'm really thankful. So I imagine you feel pretty lucky. Not only did you get to have one love story, you get to have two love stories in your life. How unique I, is that? I do. And, and that whole love story is a whole, I mean, that could be a whole Hallmark movie in and of itself of how <laughs> Keith and I met yeah. and his background and how we got together. And it's just, yeah, it's so ordained um, by God. But yes, I feel so blessed that um, I've been able to love and be loved so, so deeply twice in this life. It's really an amazing gift. That's so cool. There's something I want to touch on that you said a moment ago that mm-hmm. you started dating, people start judging. It's like they go hand in mm-hmm. hand. Mm-hmm. And so what would you say to people that when you start to quote unquote move on, mm-hmm. not that you ever move on from the grief yeah. or your other, other love, but you start to move on in life a little bit. Do people start to feel left behind who are, uh, so you had Jeff and you had mm-hmm. his family Mm-hmm. And you guys are all connected from when you're married, you're connected those families mm-hmm. by that spouse, right. but the spouse is no longer there. Does that other family start to feel strained or left behind? You know, I, I'm sure of that. Um, you know, my, my former in-laws did share that, that it's just hard. Like, where is your place without their, I mean, their son had died. So what, you know, what is the place? And my belief in the way that I described it and the way that I said, it's like, look, we are family, always connected. So it's all about how we choose to respond to this situation. And I think the the most important thing in this time is to extend grace to one another. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the only way that you deal with these transitions is honesty, authenticity, and grace with one another. Because we're dealing with grief. We're dealing with a new normal. Mm-hmm. We're dealing with somebody from the outside coming in and loving maybe your grandkids or loving your family or just holidays. Everything is different. Right. And so, t- so often when it's different, we tend to, uh, you know, get act weird as human beings. We sometimes get weird when right. things are different. And mm-hmm. so I think the greatest thing that we could do is to extend grace to one another and say, this is a process of figuring this new life out together. And if everybody goes in with grace and understanding, then there's no question that it can all work out and everyone can enjoy this new life together and share it together. I think that's a great answer. I don't think you could have said it any better. Thank so you. now that you've found love, we know now you leaked it already. You guys got married. <laughs> Spoiler alert. You guys got married, which is amazing. I'm really happy for you. Thank you. 
And so tell me how that process with Jeff, going through all that grief, trusting God, doubting God, mm -hmm. coming through on the other side, how did that shape you to where you're at today and what you're doing with your life? Oh my gosh, it's, it's shaped everything about who I am. I've always known that God is um, the one true. I mean, the, 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 that God is what um, it's all about, that, that I'm on this earth to bring glory to God. I've always known that. Mm -hmm. um, but I, um, over these past years, um, the most important thing and what has really transformed my life is putting that faith into action in the deepest, darkest times of our life. And that's kind of what has led me to what I'm doing now. I think I don't think, but I know that when we are struggling and suffering, um, we tend to, um, well, try to do things on our own. We have a hard time trusting in the goodness of God when we are struggling so much. And we are so often focused on trying to help other people that we don't really do what we need to do to take care of ourselves and be in a healthy place. And that is what kind of has led me to all this. Number one, the most important thing is that God will never leave us or forsake us wherever we are at in life. Absolutely. And I believe that when we truly stake our life on that, that that changes everything. Because we do a lot in reaction mm -hmm. to our fear and our fear of being hurt again or our fear of life not going how we want it to go. So we, um, we react a lot instead of living in faith. Yeah, so... If you would ever to look at her website, you would say she's a pretty busy person. So uh, let me let me list a couple of things that you are that you do. So you're a mom, yes. Mm -hmm. You're a wife, yes. Mm -hmm. You're a health coach, yes. Mm -hmm. You're a grief coach. Mm -hmm. You're a public speaker. Mm -hmm. You have so many things going on. What which of those right now is not not the one's more important than the other? What's one that stands out to you that's helping people the most? Do you think? So it's really interesting how all of this has come together. And so what I think is the core of what I'm doing right now and what I speak about and what I'm coaching about is living a life um, and it's being healthier from the inside out. And that's what my whole message is, is that, again, as a caretaker and who's someone whose life got turned totally upside down, my whole existence was helping everybody else deal with this horrible loss and grief that we had in our life. Mm -hmm. And in that process, I forgot how to take care of me. Mm -hmm. And when we forget to take care of ourselves, then we can, we often struggle with being the person that God wants us to be, which is ultimately the most important thing. And so part of what, what, what's most important to me right now is I work mainly with women. I definitely work with men, but predominantly my clients are women. Mm -hmm. And it's about learning how to be healthy again from the inside out. When we um, are so busy and we're lost and we're dealing with difficult things, number one, the first thing to go is, like I said, taking care of ourselves with nutrition, exercise so the physical part of our body but the also and then that leads to self-doubt low self-esteem forgetting that God created us and made us in his image forgetting that he has a purpose for our life 
forgetting that we are created by the master creator, like there's so much value to our life, we forget that. And then this spiral of a super unhealthy life in spiritually, emotionally, physically, that's what starts to develop. And so for me, those are all connected. Mm -hmm. And so I start with really the physical part of practical tools for living a healthier life. And then we dive into some of the more spiritual and emotional issues that come along with that. I think that is absolutely amazing. Along those lines you just touched on, there was one of your quotes that stood out to me also. Is you said, it's about accepting that you were created with a purpose and that God has a great plan for your life and working through difficult times and knowing that you have the strength and the tools to get through it. Yeah. I think that is so powerful. When I read that, I was like, I have to read that quote. That was awesome. Thank and you. Because I, I talk about it on the podcast a lot. I think God has designed us specifically for a purpose in life, mm -hmm. and that purpose is not just to be here to suffer. We're not just here to suffer for the sake of suffering, you know, and I've said this on other podcasts, but I'm going to say it again because it has so much truth to it. He puts us here and we may suffer and not may, we will suffer. You're going to mm -hmm. go through something. If you have it, it's coming. <laughs> exactly. Be prepared. I'm not saying you're, someone's going to pass away, but it could be a little bit, something's going to come, but it's up to you to trust God to use you and mm -hmm. accept his grace to come through it on the other side to help somebody else. Mm -hmm. And you can do that. So if you're listening and you're wondering, what's my thing? Take a second, like Kendra did on the floor of that closet, and listen to God Yeah. and find out what that answer is. I think that's really cool. Yeah, Something else you. that I saw that you were doing, along the 20 other things that I listed that you do, is that you're a co-director with Design for Living Ministries. Yes. I, just, I saw that. So, so the website is designforliving.com. What is that? Okay. So I'm so glad you brought this up because we have now changed our name to Equip for Life. So oh. I'll get all that information out. We're redoing our website. But okay. essentially what we are is um, um, we are a ministry that has a passion to equip women for living. And here's, here's how I like to describe it. When you go get a, when you get a job or your husband gets a job, they go away to training when you go to a new company or whatever, or if you're a teacher or whatever it is, we become, we choose to follow Jesus. We become moms. We are wives. What kind of training do we have? We don't really have training. And so here we are trying to live the life we're called to. We start to believe and know that there's a purpose to our life and we want to follow Jesus and we want to live out this great life, but we don't necessarily have the tools to do it. So we are a ministry that is starting to serve this entire country and we do it in a variety of ways. We're a resource ministry, but also um, we do what we call half day conferences. We understand that women, we'd love we will be putting on full weekend conferences for women, kind of like women of faith and just different big organizations. But um, mm -hmm. we are, um, we want to equip women to be able to live their life, tell their story, like what you're doing and, and know that there are practical tools for being a woman who follows Jesus, even when it's not easy. So that's, that's awesome. kind of, yeah. And so we want to talk about like real life issues. And I, I really am passionate about the fact that one of the biggest issues I see in the Christian community, and although we like to talk about the fact that we're not like this, there's this expectation of perfection. Mm -hmm. And we are doing a um, half-day conference in April, and it's called, and I love this, this is what I share with my clients, it's called Perfectly Imperfect. And I believe that that totally describes us 
um, as human beings, that God created us in his image, but we are so imperfect and we do not need to spend our life trying to create this perfect, um, you know, facade of who we are. We need to be authentically our imperfect selves and watch how God works his magic and does his work in our life to make us the women he's created us to be. I love it. You know, God says we are wonderfully made. So mm-hmm. it's not about being perfect. Just no, right. It. And I think that's awesome. It sounds like you guys have created a real safe place for these women to come, mm-hmm. to be real, be authentic, and yes. to get that spiritual boot camp that you need. Yes. Put themselves to get back in the world, being a mom and a wife and everything else that they are. Yeah. Um, I think it's awesome. Well, Kendra, it has been my pleasure having you here today on the show. Um, your story is so powerful. And I... I said this in a pause we had. I feel like I'm sitting here with popcorn in front of Kendra. She's telling the story. I'm like, this is like a movie, but it's real life. And it, it's so powerful and it's going to touch so many people's lives. And I wanted to say it again. And I said it earlier. You sit here with such strength. And I would say normally, not if I wasn't someone of faith, like, I don't know how you sit here, but I know how you sit here. It's God's sure. grace. With God's grace, you can yeah. do anything. And you gives you that strength to sit here in front of us and tell us the story and share hope and encouragement with other people. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And yes, there is no possible way that I would be where I am in my life or had, there's no possible way I would have been able to weather what my family went through and the pain that we went through without the incredible grace of God. I mean, he, he is why I do what I do every single day. That's awesome. And you're still going to be changing lives every day. Yes. And I want people to be able to connect with you. And okay. what's the best way to connect with you? So you can um, connect with me. Um, I mean, I'll take it via email. You can email me, which I'll give to you or you have, but it's also all on my website. There's forms that you can fill out to connect with me and I can get your information directly. Mm-hmm. But um, I am willing to chat and, you know, and support and encourage any woman that is, or any person that is struggling out there or just wants to talk and learn how to live, you know, the life that God created them for. That's awesome. So what I will do is I'll put all of this in the show notes. There is okay. KendraZaru.com mm-hmm. where I saw all this great information of these quotes mm-hmm. that I was reading from, and they can contact you there. Is that correct? That's perfect. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. And well, then KendraZaru Kendra at gmail.com as well as my, is my direct email too. Okay. I'll include that also in the show notes as well so people can Thank connect you. with you directly and uh, maybe you can give them some more encouragement or a little bit more questions about your story and stuff like that. Anything. Yep. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It has totally been my honor and pleasure. And everybody, give it up for Kendra Zaru, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us today. Have a great day. Thank you. Have a great day. Well, what an amazing pleasure it was for myself and for all of us today to have had Kendra on the show to share her story. I really appreciate her being so raw and so real and so honest with us as she shared a very painful part of her life. And she talked about it in her story. The pain never goes away. It becomes different over time. Um, but she found joy and hope on the other side. If you got a picture of pain on one side and you picture hope on the other side, what's the bridge to get you there? It's God's grace. So she showed us a perfect blueprint of how you can get through that pain and come through it on the other side to live a life of fulfillment, live a life of love with somebody else, and to not give up. But one of the things she talked about, and I brought it up in the interview, and it's real for me today, is sitting in that pain. And I asked her what that meant. You know, What does it mean to sit in that pain? And she talked to us about that. She said, you just have to sit in it, feel it, let it wash over you. 
no matter how painful it is, how real and raw it is, you have to take that time to sit in it, process it, and then have a chance to feel that freedom on the other side by God's love. So are you out there today going through some kind of pain that you've put off and not dealt with it? Are you going through pain right now and not sure what to do with it? Take that moment, take the advice from Kendra to sit in that pain and feel it today. Get through that pain so you can get to that hope, so you can get to that next level, get to that next light in your life. I don't want this podcast to end in telling you guys to be in pain. That's not what I'm getting at. I'm trying to pull these amazing points from her story and her life that she lived, that she continues to live and continues to shine. But to get there, you can't ignore the pain. You can't just put it away. You need to have a chance to deal with it, sit in it, and have a chance to move on. And I want you guys to be open to the answer that God is giving you today. Do you remember in Kendra's story how she was in her husband's closet? And she was calling out to God and saying, will he live? Will he make it through this? Will he survive it? Will he beat this? And she didn't get the answer that she wanted. She got another answer. And she continued to ask and continue to get a different answer. And how often are we doing that in our life where we're asking for something? God, will this happen? Will I get this? Will this? And you get a different answer. And you get another answer. And we keep asking the wrong question. So today, I want you to think about it. Find out what is the question that you need to be asking that goes along with the answer that God is giving you. As we wrap up the show today, I want you guys to know that there is so much hope for you on the other side. There is such a chance for you to rebuild a life after going through such pain and devastation that you don't have to stay in this dark time forever. It will hurt, and things may not seem perfect right now, but they can get better. They will get better. So I want you to rely on your faith, rely on God's grace to get you to the other side of whatever you're going through today. I can't thank Kendra enough for being on the show today again and showing us all these powerful tools in a blueprint to make it through and to find love again, to find your faith again, and to stay strong the whole way through. Guys, I want to connect with you. I want to hear from you. You guys are very important to me. This show is all about you. It's all about you. And the stories that you want to hear, the stories that you are hearing, and the opportunity for you to share those stories with other people. How can we do that? We can do that by going to unwrittenlifepodcast.com. There's a contact form that you can fill out right to my email. You can submit your story. I can read it here on the air. Or if there's some questions you have about previous guests or anything like that, I would be happy to answer them. The conversation is always going on on Facebook at the Unwritten Life Podcast group. Feel free to join, comment, be part of the family there. We'd really love to have you. And then also you can hit me up on Instagram at Unwritten Life Podcast as well. If you feel it in your heart and you're loving this show and the way to spread the hope, the best compliment to myself, like I said, is to keep on sharing, sharing, sharing. Please leave a written review on iTunes so more people have an opportunity to have this message of hope go out in front of them and rate the show for us. I really, really appreciate that. So we have come to the end of yet another episode. But guys... This is not the end of your story, not the end of your journey by any stretch. Remember, you matter, you can make a difference, and your story is still unwritten.